0: Hi, this is Ethan Bernick, and in this episode of Mastering Public Service, we are interviewing Dr. Kamathi Choma. Dr. Choma is the Assistant Dean of Diversity, Recruitment and Retention in the College of Arts and Sciences, a role he has had since the spring of 2016. Dr. Chuma earned a Bachelor's of Science degree at Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania, and then graduated from the College of Veterinary Medicine at Kansas State University in May of 2007. He then earned his Master's of Public Health from the University in 2013. Before taking on the role in the college, he was involved with the public health program at Kansas State University in a number of capacities. As you will hear in our discussion, he has taken an interesting career path and there are a number of lessons about taking advantage of the opportunities afforded you even when the path was not what you originally thought it might be. Because Dean Choma develops and guides the comprehensive strategy for diversity, retention and recruitment for the college, we thought he could provide great insight into what it's like to manage diversity programs for a large public agency. In our conversation, we discuss important issues such as why it's so important to work towards a more diverse and inclusive organization. What effective actions can be taken by that organization to support diversity and inclusion? What are the common obstacles to implementing those actions? And how we can all be better allies? As you will hear, Dr. Choma is someone who is passionate about the issues he is working on and really pretty positive about some of the steps that have been taken and the opportunities we have to do better going forward. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Today we are joined by a really interesting guest, Dr. Kamathi Choma. Dr. Choma is the Assistant Dean of Diversity, Recruitment and Retention. Did I get that right? Yes. Uh, In the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, In addition to his role there, he's also a graduate of the vet school at K-State. And um, today we're going to talk with him about his career uh, path, uh, how he got to where he is, and then we're going to move into some discussion about some of the issues, some of the things that he's doing at his, as his role as the assistant dean. So um, with that, welcome Dr. Choma.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, So if I can just start off telling you a little bit about myself. I'm originally from the East Coast. I came out to the Midwest for graduate school with my wife, who got her doctorate of English. And then I came to K-State to get my doctorate in veterinary medicine and did that and then went out into the world to practice veterinary medicine, but quickly got recruited back to Kansas State to direct an undergraduate public health program. I was told that if you direct this program, we will pay for your master's in public health. That sounded like a great idea to me because I I would get another degree and so that increased my earning potential. So I directed that undergraduate public health program for six years and then um, the grant was coming to an end. So I was looking for a job and the assistant dean Um, for the College of Arts and Sciences for diversity, recruitment, and retention opened up. And I said, wow, that sounds like a good opportunity to go from a director of a program to an assistant dean. So five years ago, I applied and got that position. And I've been doing it for five years, and it's been going very well. um, We've been doing things. We have a college-wide diversity committee in the College of Arts and Sciences, um, and I sit ex officio on that, and we have chairs. We're doing things like the U.S. Multicultural Overlay. We've I've started programs like MLTEP, our Black Male Initiative at Kansas State. I've also been involved in things like what matters to me and why. It's a way in which faculty can talk about what's important to them relative diversity aspects it could be religion it could be it could be faith it could be your sexual orientation it could be your gender your race any of things like that whatever's important to you it could be boy scouts that's
0: awesome did so um (laughs) did you ever so you started as a vet a veterinarian Uh uh-huh did you ever sort of think that you're going to make this link to doing what you're doing? Or is it just sort of? No,
1: I love that. No, I love that question. Because not at all. Just to be straight honest with you, I, uh, my wife and I graduated from a small Christian college in Pennsylvania. And I wanted to be a veterinary missionary. So I applied to vet school the first time, didn't get in, and then applied. The only school I applied to twice was K-State. And the first time I was out of state, the second time I was in state, and I'm glad I didn't get in the first time because the cost is majorly different from out of state to in state. So for any students, go in state. It's a lot cheaper. And um, I wanted to be a veterinary missionary, but then, um, you know, things just, doors weren't opening in that direction. I graduated from vet school and then was looking for a job. I went out in the world to find a job in veterinary medicine and just couldn't find a job. And I had a wife and a small child under the age of one. And so I needed to work. (laughs) So I was doing, you know, just what I could to make a living, thinking I had a veterinary job, uh, I have a veterinary, excuse me, degree, but couldn't find a job in veterinary medicine in the city of Lincoln, Nebraska. Then someone from K-State contacted me and said, we know that while you were here, you wanted to get a master's in public health. If you come back and teach for us, we'll pay you the starting salary of a veterinarian and we'll pay for your master's in public health. And I said, wow. So what that well, lesson from that that I want to tell you about is do an excellent job in everything that you do. Because you don't know who's watching you and will recognize your potential and recognize what you're doing and see and create. Honestly, I'll be honest, straight honest with you. An opportunity was created for me because there was a grant, and the people that I ended up working for saw my potential and said, we have this grant. And basically with grants, you have more freedom on who you hire. Um, So they hired me and then I came on board. I directed that undergraduate public health program for six years. Just to be honest with you, did a great job in that. And then that opened up other doors. So then I, um, the assistant dean for diversity recruitment and retention came open and I said, well, I directed this undergraduate public health program. I really cut my teeth and learned what administration was all about doing that director's position. And this job came open and I said, well, let me at least put my hat in the ring and see if I can, well, I was gonna apply. And if I got it, great. And if not, I needed to find something else to do. So I applied and um, got the job and it's been great ever since. I absolutely love what I do.
0: Yeah, and, and um, why diversity sort of these, was it the, um, I know, just I have a little inside informa- information, I mean, I know you have a real sort of love or concern for issues of re- recruitment and retention mm-hmm. among students, but so was it that side that drew you or is it the everything about the job?
1: It's everything about the job. It's really the retention. Um, diversity is an aspect of it, in a sense that no matter your sexual orientation, your gender, your race, I believe at the core of my being that everyone has the right to education, and that's where I really plugged in on I mean, at first. You know, with my passion about veterinary medicine and public health and with all that's going on with COVID and everything like that, people have a right to be healthy. And so I really wanted to get into the public health field and it just naturally fed into we can help people be better if they're educated. So you can only sell or only promote something you believe in. And I really believe in education as it has the opportunity to change people's lives. If you have a person from a lower socioeconomic status, no matter their, like I said, gender, race, sexual orientation, but if they can become educated, get through a university such as K-State without a lot of debt then we have the opportunity to change their life. You can change your station in life from a socioeconomic status. Now, any education is good, but it's so much better to be educated without a lot of loan debt because if you you have a lot of loan debt and you don't graduate, that's an even greater problem but at least if you graduate, then you have the earning potential to pay back those loans and change your, your family status, for that matter. So yes, I'm concerned about you know, people of color and, like I said, gender and socioeconomic status and um, all of those issues, but they all play into me, they all relate for me relative to changing people's station in life.
2: I think that's such an important point. And, and kind of not just emphasizing recruitment, but retention. Mm-hmm. That it's not just about getting people in the door. It's about keeping them there and making sure they get the most out of their experiences. I think that's, that's so key. And so you've already kind of spoken to, you know, what education can do for an individual mm-hmm. in their lives. What do you think, what's the benefit for an organization? to be more diverse and inclusive. So not just like individually, how can it improve a person, but how can we all be improved by being part of an organization that's more diverse and inclusive, do you think?
1: When I, when I think about inclusion and diversity relative to an organization, you get a much better outcome, no matter what you're trying to produce, the more diverse you are. Because if you have a monolithic culture, and environment, all the people are thinking the same, so therefore you can really only get a limited outcome, and and it won't be optimal. Okay, I'll give you an example. So we have the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, We have arts and humanities, we have social and behavioral science, we have the natural and quantitative sciences. In trying to pass the US multicultural overlay, we put it forward, this is a three credit hour course that all undergraduate students in the College of Arts and Sciences are required to take. And we have 50 courses now that um, qualify for that we had 22 departments that had to all agree upon <laughs> this uh, one US multicultural overlay. And it took us about two years to get it done. And we put it forth and they they tore it up. They they ripped it apart. It wasn't good. A lot of people didn't like it. But we went back to the drawing board and then rethought it and then put it out again and then got consensus from 22 Diverse individuals and from the arts and the humanities and the um, social and behavioral sciences and the natural and quantitative sciences and the end product was so much better than what the let's say the diversity committee originally conceived of now there was a lot of pain and effort to go through all of that, but we now have it and now let me uh, another you know exciting part is now not only do we have it within The College of Arts and Sciences, but it has been now put forward as a model for the whole university to have a course. So that's a great accomplishment. And that's, that contributes or explains, you know, the benefit of having a diverse environment or diversity of thought. But not only do you need diversity of thought. But racial and ethnic and gender um, diversity is also important. And the reason why is because, let's say, people of color don't think the same exactly because of their cultural background as are Caucasian or white individuals. Women think differently than men and so on down and so forth. But if you have one monolithic culture, uh, race, gender, whatever you want to say, then you're only going to come out with one particular outcome. So it benefits any um, institution business to be diverse
2: no absolutely. I think you know just the creative process of bringing exactly. people with different backgrounds and um, cultural understandings together it can it can really lead to kind of great outcomes um, you know. What do you, have you experienced any kind of obstacles? I mean, you mentioned that it was a difficult process to get this multicultural overlay. What do you see as some of the bigger obstacles, or at least obstacles that exist in organizations that really want to commit to becoming more inclusive or culturally competent? Um, You know, do you see any common obstacles?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's incumbent upon an organization to bring people of whatever dynamic you want to attract into leadership if you don 't have leadership in that area in your organization, so let 's say for instance, you want to bring in people of color or african Americans you need some african Americans in leadership in your company um, or your organization you know i 'll use arts and sciences excuse me i 'll use k state as for instance uh, many years ago we did not have um, diversity point person. So I serve as the diversity point person for the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm only the second person to be in this position. So it was incumbent upon K-State to put finances and money behind having a person like me in this position to move forward diversity, equity, and inclusion and recruitment and retention. Um, and to have what we now have, a chief diversity and inclusion officer, someone that's reporting directly to the president. So if you are a company, you need someone that can speak to those topics and has a background in it. Now, unlike me, I don't have a background. I didn't study diversity, equity, and inclusion as a profession. I, I studied veterinary medicine and public health. I kind of, in a sense, fell into this job but I love it because it gives me the opportunity to help and support students from either a lower socioeconomic status or from particular identities, um, intersectionalities that other people may not think about. Um, That's what's the most important thing. So yeah, putting people in positions to help you go where you wanna go. For at K-State, it's like having, having faculty of color or faculty, uh, more female faculty, more female faculty of um, whatever status that you're looking to attract.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good, good point. And I kind of want to follow up on that. And it, um, so this summer, obviously there, uh, we, there were a lot, there was a lot going on. And one of the things that we saw were, uh, at one point was the, um, I'm sure you saw the Black at K-State Twitter, th- Twitter thread and information, and I'm sure y- you are more aware of it than, than Brian or I, um, but one of the things that struck me was that many of the students and many of the people responding was th- the concern that uh, a lot of the actions that we take as organizations are more symbolic than mm-hmm. substantive. and. Um, I'm not asking you to call anybody out, but how do we as organizations, right? How do we as organizations, do you think, or, I mean, you may not have an answer to this. How do we move beyond that symbolic support to, to the more substantive sort uh, of I, support uh, that uh, the students I, are begging for, it seems like?
1: Yeah, I have an answer. Um, okay. I think financially and um, strategic planning. So financially, you put money behind where you want to go. So if you say you want more faculty of color or you want more students of color or you want more women in your department, you have to intentionally hire or you have to intentionally, you know, seek after those individuals. Um, So and then once they get here, you support them. You have grants or scholarships or whatever it takes financially. Mentorship is important, whether it's students or faculty. You know, if you are a first generation student or you may be a first generation faculty, um, you need mentorship. So, mentorship is critical. Uh, that's important. And then, not only money but also you have a strategic plan and you measure it. Anything that you don't measure, you cannot accomplish. So we, we find the data. So if we wanna change the number of students, excuse me, the graduation rate of a particular population of students, we have to know retention and graduation rate, we have to know what it is currently, and then we have to come up with a strategic plan, how we're gonna get it to where we wanna be. If you don't measure it, you can't change it. So any organization has to look at where they are, and then sit down and come up with a strategic plan of what is necessary to get where they wanna be. We, we do this all the time with so many things. And it's, it's, it's important to think, oh, this can't, don't think this can't happen. So since COVID has been on, there have been many things that we have said, well, it was impossible for a person to work at home and get everything done that they need to get done. We can't possibly, you know, we have to fly across the country to have a Zoom meeting, uh, not a Zoom meeting, but to have a meeting. You know, now we're doing things that we thought per COVID that were impossible uh, a year ago or before March 12th, and we got it done. I think the same thing can be done with diversity equity inclusion if you have the will to do it and i'll and i'll I'll say this I think I can say this um k state now has the will to do it previously i'll be honest with you i'm not going to call any names, but they did not have a will to do it so in twenty uh seventeen they didn't have the will to do it. there were a lot of let's say and racist things going on, homophobic things going on, uh, anti-religion things going on. And our committee put forth a letter, by committee I mean the diversity committee within the College of Arts and Sciences, put forth a letter to central administration. And this was a different um, provost and I think a different president at that time. So it's actually, I'm not implicating the current, the central administration. They, weren't, they didn't have the will, that administration, to do what this administration is doing now. Um, so I'm very excited um, about what is going on now. The president put forth, and with the provost, 11 points to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion at K-State and do some of the most important things, in my opinion, which is to um, retain and graduate students of color. That is huge.
2: No, I think that you've made some really important points that I think, you know, all organizations can learn from, um, definitely universities, but even in a broader way, you know, the idea that you have to put resources behind your, you know, your commitments that, you know, I I think we're all familiar with the old saying that budgets are moral documents, they kind of tell you what you value, right? Exactly. And that, um, you know, a strategic plan you know, to be transparent about it, but then accountable, you know, to measure things and, and hold yourself accountable to your goals and, and not to be limited, to kind of think broad and, and kind of um, go for it. I think those are all just really important lessons for organizations to, to learn when they're trying to um, really commit to the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um kind of shifting a little bit, um, but still in this kind of uh, area. Do you have any um, advice or tips on how an individual can be a good ally in an organization, Mm -hmm. you know, someone with privilege? How can we um, really be be effective allies?
1: So, In universities, we talk about cultural competency, and we take classes on cultural competency, but I can't expect someone else to be completely culturally competent in someone else's culture. So I grew up African-American. You grew up African-American male, and you grew up a white female. I can never completely understand what it's like to be a white female in America, nor can you completely understand what it's like to be an African-American male male in America. I can explain all my experiences all day long, and we can come to some agreement and understanding. But what we could do to be an ally, like as a male, I can be an ally for you when I'm in a meeting, and I see that you've said something that is very valuable. And a lot of times I see, and I've, I've learned this, whereas a woman will say something and nobody's paying any attention, and then a man will say it. Everybody goes, wow, did you hear what he just said? No, then I'm an ally, and I say, well, let's direct this back. Do you see that she said that prior to you saying that, or if I reference it, I reference what you said. Same same thing, in a sense, from a racial standpoint. If you see something, you have to, uh, and I said, call it out sometimes, or call it in. You can find a very civil way to help people gain um, in their understanding of something that you already see. But you can, like I go back to the previous point, you can never become completely culturally competent, but what you can always be is culturally humble, meaning that I can always seek understanding, I can always seek to be humble, I can always stay in a learning standpoint, I can start to think, well, how do I see this from your eyes and your vantage point? Because we all have intersectionality, different ways where maybe we might be dominant in this area of society and or subordinate in this area of society. So think about how it is something in your life has impacted you that might uh, be different from something somebody else may have been negatively impacted by. So hopefully that answered your question.
0: Yeah, no, that was, that was awesome. That was great. Um, so I, I kind of want to piggyback on that a little bit because one of the things we see, I'm going to piggyback, but then I'm also going to sort of use your role as, as the, dean of, uh, the dean here. Um, one of the things we often hear from some of our students who are going working in like this, the city of Manhattan or the county or some other place, I'm not gonna use names or anything like that, but they're begging for, to do work on diversity inclusion in their, their organizations. But one of the things that they often say is, there's just so many people putting up roadblocks, right? To, to this. And there's just so many people that are either um, Either sort of adverse to the idea that uh, we can work on being an anti-racist, or that they are that they are racist at all, and and so in your role is, is in the, in your role for the college, oftentimes you're having to work with organ departments or whoever that are are maybe a little hesitant to the idea to say you know. Why should we have a diversity committee in our department, or why should we Mm -hmm. participate at the college level? Mm -hmm. How do you do? You have any sort of suggestions for people who are saying, you know, how can we work with people (laughs) who don't really sort of want to want to do it?
1: Does Um, does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense, and I have two different um, explanations. So there are three different groups of people. There's that group of people that are starch against diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let's be honest with ourselves. You're not gonna change them. That should not be your goal. You know, let's just, you know, uh, the, like Martin Luther King says, the arc of justice bends in our favor and it's gonna come maybe they'll retire at some point in time then you have that middle group where um, you know they just don't know and they're trying to learn maybe or they're not trying to learn but if you have the right um group then you can talk to them and then they can they can grow and they'll come along board and then you have people like yourself <laughs> Dr. Burnick that are all on board and I say this because we've worked together a lot um And then you have have those, that's, that's, you work with those people. And then I say, build it anyway. The reason why I say build it anyway, and okay, maybe you can't get them to establish a, let's say, a diversity committee within their department. But what you can do is be ready because the time will come. So the reason why I say this is we were working on. Um, anti-racism, the U.S. multicultural overlay, and all of these things long before the climate was ready for it. So you have to be ready because one day the climate will be ready for it, and that's not time for you to then go try and get your ducks in a row. So although everybody's not on board, I'll be honest with you, K-State wasn't always on board to the level that they are now that did not prevent the diversity committee from arts and diversity committee within the College of Arts and Sciences from doing the hard work, preparing things, writing letters, getting all ready. And then when they were ready, we could hand them a document and say, here it is. I mean, I got a plan. I got a strategic plan. Everything you need is right here. L- let's go, <laughs> as, they, uh, as, as they say. Um, I like the, mo- I like the uh, play Hamilton, um, and there's so many. I'm going to bring some of that up, you know, I-, I realize. And if you haven't seen Hamilton, I encourage you to. Oh, Brianne's Bri- <laughs> w- watched it about 1,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you can't yeah. say let's go if you're not ready. You know, when, when the president said to Hamilton – you know, Hamilton said, do you want me to do treasury or state? And he said, treasury. Hamilton said, let's go. I'm ready.
2: You have to be ready. Absolutely. I think that's great advice that, you know, you can't control when others are ready necessarily, but you can start making plans and start doing the work anyway, so that it is ready to go. As you said, you're not kind of, you know, stuck planning when things are just right. You've already got that that done. So I think that's great advice. Um, So if you could give any advice to, you know, public sector workers in our current environment, you know, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty, um, as we've seen this summer, um, Mm -hmm. you know, related to, you know, COVID, but also to the racial justice, um, you know, the fight for racial justice. Um, Just in this kind of, you know, ever-changing environment. Um, If you could give advice to any new kind of public sector leaders or employees, what would that advice look like?
1: Um, I want to go back to Hamilton. If you are in the room, advocate for those who are not in the room. Um, If you want to see increased diversity, equity, inclusion, and fairness, then you have to advocate for that because you're in the room and that other people of another identity aren't in the room. So I encourage you, if you want to see more diversity, advocate for that. Speak up about it. Also, you know, like we said before, if you have control of any area of the budget, then direct some of that finances and resources toward what you want to see bring colleagues on board that look like are like um gender what, whatever you want to see find ways to create what you want to see
0: that's great that's i mean and, that, and that, it's so important right that, that you know let's not i mean one of the exciting things you know we're both doing the, the anti-racist. Uh, I can't remember what the anti-race.
1: It so it's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. I'm going to uh, shamelessly flash the book. Give me one second. <laughs> I didn't write it, so I, I'm going to have no problem promoting yeah. it. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, it's How to Be an Anti-Racist. He wrote that book, and he also wrote Stamp from the beginning, which is the definitive history of how to excuse me, the definitive history of racial ideas in America. If you, it's it's a great starting point. Um, uh, Stamp from the beginning is the diagnosis, you know, how America got the way it is from a racial standpoint. This book, I say, is the cure. We can all become more anti-racist. That's not just white people. That's black people. That's Everyone can be more anti-racist, and so it's a great book. Dr. Kendi is phenomenal, and I and this is, I mean, it's it's all in the media right now. A lot of people are reading that book, um, and yeah. k state is doing book club, a book club, or a, a not even just a book club, a um, mastermind experience. And a colleague of mine is, you know, leading that up.
0: Yeah, that I and mean, that's really exciting, and that's what I wanted to bring up. Is that sometimes these events provide uh, windows of opportunity, right? And so, like, um, you also had a book club about Stanford in the beginning, I but did. there were a handful of people like, involved. Yeah. Right. It, but now there's, there's hundreds of people involved with the. How many? 400? Four,
1: so, let me give you a little history. We literally had five people, me and the other co-presenter, and then three other people that did the book club consistently for Stamp from the beginning. Sometimes there were more, sometimes there was 10, sometimes there was 15, but there were about five consistent people. Now we have over 400 people that are involved in this book club. So that, or experience, mastermind experience. And that's why I say, be ready. We created this long before K-State was ready to receive it and embrace it. And you bring me to another point. We have to be continual learners. You don't just graduate from K-State, take this course that you're in currently, talking to the students now, um, and say, I'm done. You know, it's great. I learned it. No, you have to continually learn and continually educate yourself on whatever topic that is most important to you. You have to be a lifelong learner. um, And you have to learn about whatever you want to create.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really – I mean, because like you in some ways, I mean, Brian and I, some of our research is on diversity issues. and um, But like you, my my research in grad school was on public health stuff. <laughs> so you just you – you never know what that, that learning is going to take – where that learning is going to take you. Yeah. Um, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. And this is the kind of a question we ask everybody at the sort of the wrap-up. Um, and you kind of alluded to it earlier mm-hmm. at the very beginning. So, a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are people just starting off in their careers. They're either mm-hmm. the first year in, their, in the program of the mm-hmm. master's program or they're just getting their first job. What would you tell maybe it's, you know, Dr. Choma when they were first starting <laughs> off? What would you tell them? Uh, just that piece of advice that you would give them way back when. Some of that easy or that mm-hmm. you know, early public sector employee mm-hmm. advice.
1: You, you need mentors. Um, that's the most critical. You know, think about education a long, long, long time ago. You didn't go to an institution, um, you apprenticed, and then you became. A veterinarian, a physician or a public sector worker by apprenticeship with someone. That's still important. So you need someone that you can trust um, and you need a mentor. You need multiple mentors um, in different areas of your life. You know, you need that a public sector mentor, somebody that's been doing this a long time that can mentor you in a way that will help you be successful because you're very new to this. Um, You haven't done it before. How do you know all the pitfalls? But I've been in this position five years, so I can tell somebody how to do this well. And give yourself a little grace the first year. I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't go in the first year and try and flip everything on its head, make a lot of changes. <laughs> That's usually a recipe for disaster. Just stay yep. the course, figure out, go through a full year, see what the natural cycle of you know, way things work at the institution that you're at or at the business that you're at. Then your second year, then you can start thinking about what you should already be thinking about. Um, what you want to change, maybe, but then you can start maybe implementing some of it your second year. But by your third year, then you can really implement it, implement it, and get it rolling. Now, then when you're in your fifth year, like I am, it starts running well and you start loving it and you've made the changes, and things like MLTEP, the Black Male Missions, are flourishing. We had You know, four years of students, um, the U.S. multicultural overlay is working well, and things start working well because you put a lot of hard work in. Just like you had to put a lot of hard work in to graduate from K-State, you're going to have to put a lot of hard work in. And it starts out, you don't know as much, and you have to put a lot of hard work in. Then later on, you know a lot more, so you may not have to put – as much work in on that particular project. You may start a new project that you have to put a lot of hard work in um, and you learn and grow from these experiences. And you learn, okay, well, uh, I did that the first time and that didn't work well, so I'm not gonna do that again. I'm gonna seek some advice from someone that knows more than what I do for some help and support. I think that's the way I would advise a, a new employee
2: I think that's I think that's just great advice kind of the importance of mentorship and being open to and taking ownership of lifelong learning you know it, through experience through education you know just the importance of of kind of never stopping uh, the learning process I, I think is is key well i think this has just been a, a great conversation and we really thank you dr toma for for um, chatting with us uh, this afternoon And um, I know that there will be, these conversations will continue long after uh, this podcast today. So thank you for for joining us and thank you everyone for listening. Yep,
1: thank you, it's my pleasure.